drive me near madness with your peering through the keyholes and gaping through the curtains. And now you'll suffer for it. You're crazy to know who I am, aren't you? All right, I'll show you. Hello, cassettes, and welcome back to the Black Case Diaries. Yes. Hey. Energy. Normal Energy. episode. Energy. Normal episode. Oh, my gosh. Yes, we're here. Full length. Full length. How long has it been? How much time do you have? <laughs> Not enough for this episode. Hopefully Ooh. at least an hour. <laughs> <laughs> we're three old monsters learning everything we can about movies and TV and hopefully teaching you in the process. I'm Marcy. I'm Robin. And I'm Adam. Yay. Hey. <laughs> Monster. A rat. Yeah. like a cat. I'm the wolf man. Ah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Frightening February and most of March went by in a flash. We focused on creating our first ever live episode with Moment, which means we didn't have a chance to release full length episodes. No, we didn't. No. Sorry, guys. Yeah. So, guess what, you guys? We're extending Frightening February into Monster March. We did ah! the march. We did <laughs> the, the Monster, Monster March. march. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> I was about to complain, <laughs> but that I'm back. Yeah. I'm yep. on board. Rob killed it. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Hell yeah. Thank you. <laughs> the last time we gathered together, we talked about the history of the Universal Monster movies and their impact on film. We also covered the first two films of Universal's Monsterverse, Dracula and Frankenstein. Yes. So this week, we're continuing to look at the other influential Universal monster movies that made a lasting mark on horror media. There's a lot of them. Oh, yeah. Man. We're there only really talking is. about a few, but there's a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> so grab your popcorn and get ready to pull the blanket up to your eyes. It's time for another dive into the Monsterverse. Yeah! <laughs> Splashing sounds. <laughs> All right, so let's just go ahead and jump right into yeah. it. Into the water, yeah. Into the deep dive. Yes. Oh, I get it. <laughs> We're going in the deep end right away. We're going to start with The Mummy from 1932. After the incredible popularity of James Wales' Frankenstein, Universal and Carl Lemley Jr. needed more horror films to continue their success. Instead of adapting classic horror literature, the studio decided to capitalize on one of the most popular events of the 1920s, the excavation of King Tutankhamun's tomb. Man, oh yeah. man. It's so funny how this excavation still feels like such a big deal. <laughs> you know? Because yeah. like when we were kids, I was like, oh yeah, King Tut, King that Tut, was huge. Yeah, oh man, King Tut, they'll yeah. never find him. They already did. <laughs> you know, it's like, what I remember what being on the History Channel a, a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. It's, it's such a monumental archaeological mm -hmm. discovery. And when I mentioned Carl Lumley Jr., I don't know if you guys remember from our first Universal Monsters episode from a thousand years ago. <laughs> <laughs> He's the son of Carl Lumley who started the studio. Yes. Of course. In 1922, British archaeologist Howard Carter led an expedition in Egypt in search of the tomb of a pharaoh. In November of that year, the tomb of King Tutankhamun was found. It was said that there was an inscription inside the tomb promising death to those that disturbed the king's remains. Shortly after the burial chamber had been opened in 1923, one of Carter's companions, Lord Carnarvon, died of blood poisoning caused by an insect bite. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. This fanned the flames of speculation that anyone involved in the expedition was cursed. By 1929, 11 other people connected to the excavation of the tomb died young or of unnatural causes, leading some newspapers to blame the so-called mummy's curse. No way. Oh, snap, <laughs> yeah. Like This is one of those things, yeah, whenever we do horror stuff, we always come across something that's cursed, quote-unquote cursed. Yes. Yeah. Like poltergeist, for example, is oh quote-unquote cursed. Right. Yes. Yeah I, yeah, I had no idea that many people... Died yeah, it, after it, this. it sounds like a lot, but it, yeah. yeah. They, <laughs> I mean, they right. connected a lot that was like, eh. sure. <laughs> yeah. Sure. I mean, of course, it's not like a, mm -hmm. an actual mummy's curse, but, yeah. it is, it, but it is a odd coincidence. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. I didn't know it was that many. Scientists later found that there was no significant connection between exposure to the tomb and survival, meaning that those present when the tomb was opened were no more likely to die within 10 years than any other Westerners in Egypt at the time. Science aside, the story took off and inspired a lot of media, 
including Universal's The Mummy, 1932. Uh, The Mummy. Yeah. I feel like this is one of the lesser popular ones. Yeah. It's, yeah. Right? It's certainly the probably the most problematic out of mm-hmm. all of them. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yes and no at the same time. This one specifically, yes. And mm-hmm. The Mummy in general, yes. Mm-hmm. But like it's had two reboots. Yeah. Sort mm-hmm. of. Mm-hmm. So strange that they picked this one twice. Yeah. Definitely I... Dracula or Frankenstein yeah. and all that come up first yeah. for sure. Absolutely. Carl Limley Jr. assigned Nina Wilcox Putnam and Richard Scheer to create a story for their next monster movie, with their star, Boris Karloff, in mind. Uh-huh. The two produced a nine-page treatment called Cagliostro after learning about the famed Italian charlatan Giuseppe Balsamo, a.k.a. Alessandro di Cagliostro. This guy was he supposedly lived forever. Yeah. He, he did, like, occult stuff, seances, things Ooh. like that. Mm-hmm. He was super famous. Fun. Yeah. The original tale followed an ancient magician that claimed to have lived for centuries. Screenwriter John Balderson heavily revised the script, transforming the title character into an Egyptian mummy. So originally, the script had nothing to do with Egypt. Nope. Hilarious. (laughs) The main guy was Italian. He was not a mummy. (laughs) In the film, Boris Karloff plays Ardoth Bey, or Imhotep, named for an ancient Egyptian architect and high priest. In the film, Imhotep is an ancient Egyptian mummy who was killed for attempting to resurrect his deceased lover, Ankhesen Amun. After being discovered and accidentally brought to life by a team of archaeologists, he's sure he searches for her, whom he believes has been reincarnated in the modern world. Very interesting. Uh, yeah. Balderson's script had many striking similarities to his earlier work, especially Dracula. The studio even recycled set decorations and props from Dracula in the film. Hey. Yeah. yeah Wait, this is... save money. Yes. Oh, yeah. They did that a lot, I feel like. Mm-hmm. They recycled a lot of different things. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which makes sense. Yeah. And, and I always think it's funny when studios use the same actor, like, really close together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, if you've ever watched a lot of old live-action Disney stuff, they do that, too. Where yes. it's like you watch three different movies. It's like, wait, it's same the same guy, guy again. <laughs> yes. The Mummy was Carl Freund's directorial debut. He was a groundbreaking cinematographer, having worked on classics like Metropolis and All Quiet on the Western Front from 1930. He was an innovator that pioneered filming techniques that are still used today. Universal's number one makeup artist, Jack Pierce, crafted the look of the film's central monster character. Boris Karloff sat for eight hours so Pierce could perfect the look even though the character only had a few minutes of screen time. Oh my gosh, not worth it. <laughs> Although Universal claimed that Pierce researched ancient embalming techniques, makeup artist Rick Baker has said that he doesn't know what research could have been done. I wonder if Universal would still back up that claim. <laughs> like, no, he really did. He really... Yeah. Yeah. I feel like if Rick Baker is being like, bro. Then... Yeah. Just stop. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it was on the special features. They yeah. allowed him to say. Yeah, like, they let him say it. Oh, that's true, yeah. <laughs> the makeup was a combination of spirit gum and painted cotton that was glued to Karloff's face. It was painful to remove. The costume department also forgot to give him a zipper in his full body suit, so Karloff could not use the bathroom. Yikes. How, how, how do you forget? Yeah, a basic necessity. That. I'm so glad I'm not an actor in the early 30s. Uh, for real. They did yeah. not care about no. them. Like, yeah. they really didn't. Right. Yeah. Oh, my God. They were like, eh, you don't need a lot of money. You can work a lot of hours. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. why, that's why they started, like, you. Screenwriters Guild and Actors Guilds and things like that. That's Yeah. Good grief. I can imagine how bad it would be now if none of that exactly. came about. Exactly. Yeah. Willie Pogani was the art director responsible for the beautiful murals and hieroglyphics used in the film. Cinematographer Charles Stumar used visual elements that enticed the audience to imagine the mummy before his screen debut. At first, the film only shows pieces of the monster, like the hand and bandage. Ooh. It's like a classic yeah. film yep. thing. Leaves a lot to the uh, imagination, and they don't have to do much. (laughs) Exactly. The film stars Boris Karloff as Ardath Bey, slash Emotep, as we mentioned before, Zita Johan as Helen Grosvenor, or Ankhesen Amun, as well as David Manners, Edward Van Solen, and Arthur Byron. 
Zidi Johan was a stage actress who took the role despite her dislike for Hollywood. I mean, mm. who's, who, mm. who's exactly? Who's yeah. <laughs> because this was Carl Freund's first film, he wanted to use Johan as a scapegoat if the picture did not do well. So he attempted to set her up to appear as a difficult actress. Well, that's oh. lame. what? Yep. Yeah, what an awful thing to do. He asked her to film a scene in the nude from the waist up. To his surprise, Johan agreed as long as he could find a way to get it past the censors. Yeah, she knew what he was doing. And, <laughs> right. and she was like, oh, okay. Right. You really think they're going to let that fly? fly? Yeah. yeah. You think yep. that's going to work? <laughs> yeah, no way. Dude, it could be like her back only and it would still yeah. maybe not mm-hmm. get They'd be like, but yeah. we know there's boobies on the front. <laughs> we can't see them, but I know they're but, there. Yeah. Yeah. Freund also didn't provide Johan with a chair on set and made her stand against a board so that she wouldn't crease her dress. Yeah. You're insane. Yeah. Didn't even have a chair to sit in. Nope. Filming took a lot out of her, no, no doubt. Yeah. And the actress claimed to have had two near-death experiences during the shoot. Wow. The Mummy was a middling success. Although having less of an impact on culture than Dracula and Frankenstein, it inspired a number of spin-offs, remakes, and reimaginings. There are no official sequels, but some of the reimagined films include The Mummy's Hand from 1940, The Mummy's Tomb from 1942, The Mummy's Ghost from 1944, and The Mummy's Curse, also from 1944. So many of these movies had, like, three-week shooting sessions yeah five week shooting sessions they never left the one set Mm -hmm. they you know i mean oh my god yeah what a different universe it Mm -hmm. was yeah although it has a different plot the more recent 1999 film claims that it is a remake of the 1932 classic maybe a remake is it as in like they want to just like pretend that the first one didn't exist. Put it on yeah. top of the old one and be like, that one is yeah. now it's, this one. It's more of like an action adventure movie instead yeah. of like a quote unquote mm-hmm. horror movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It shared several characteristics with a lot of other remakes of classic science fiction and horror movies, including being produced and distributed by the same studio. In 2017, Universal made an attempt to launch The Dark Universe with remakes of their most famous movie monsters. They began with a very poorly received reboot of The Mummy starring Tom Cruise. Yeah, so I never saw this. Yeah. I just remember hearing it was really bad. Yeah. I just remember that they released the trailer by accident yeah. without the finished audio track. Yeah. Oh, no. And so you remember this? I so did. it was yeah. like him going, ah, ah, like there was no like music. Yeah. He's just like in a in a helicopter. Yeah, silently he's crazy. I do remember that. There are two reasons why I think the dark universe flopped hard. Mm. Yeah. One, they started with the the mummy, which yeah. was why start why? with a harder. Hitter, I don't know, you know why they I mean? did that. Yeah. But yeah. Start with like Frankenstein or Dracula. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Start with a big name. Yeah. One, right? like, I mean that's yeah. what Universal did originally. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah, they didn't know it would be that and, big, but <laughs> Right. And don't go into it expecting this cinematic universe. Exactly. Yeah. We you showed your hand right re- away. Exactly. Yeah. They haven't even. They didn't even release the first movie before yeah. they said, "This is our cinematic universe. There's going to be movies upon movies." Yeah. Like, what are you doing? All right. So the next monster movie that we're going to be talking about is The Invisible Man in oh. 1933. Yay! Where? I know. Yeah. <laughs> After Frankenstein, director James Whale wanted any excuse to avoid filming a sequel. Yep, he did. Yeah. <laughs> he looked, yeah, for any, any, literally anything. What do anything. you mean you can't come up with a Frankenstein sequel? <laughs> he just, they they came up with them. He yeah. didn't want to do it. No, yeah. Eventually, yeah. <laughs> Luckily for him, the studio had begun working on a film adaptation of H.G. Wells' 1897 scientific romance, The Invisible Man. Production had been on hold because adapting the book appeared to be more difficult than expected. When Whale took over as director, he threw out every potential script written for the film and hired R.C. Sheriff to write one that was true to the novel. Yeah. None of these were anything like 
the book. There was, I think there was one with like Martians in it. And oh there my was, gosh. I mean, they yeah. were not. Yeah. They, they really just took the title and yep. ran with it. Yep. They just took the title. <laughs> Often hailed as the father of modern sci-fi, H.G. Wells's work was very influential. Although he wasn't the first to write about invisibility, he was one of the first to put a scientific spin on the concept. Yeah, it's not magic, it's science. Yeah. yeah. He believed that motion pictures would be the most important art form of the 20th century, but he was hesitant to have his novels adapted. Understood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> his book, Island of Dr. Moreau, had already been produced by Paramount before The Invisible Man and renamed Island of Lost Souls. Wells was not happy to see his multi-layered social satire be turned into a horror movie. <laughs> and he's seeing all of these Universal Monster yeah. movies, and he's like, and you want to adapt The Invisible Man? <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what that'll uh, look like. <laughs> yeah. He was very political, a socialist. In the novel, the main character speaks more like a political revolutionary, and not really a scientist. He wants to destroy the current social order because he feels so alienated from it. Yeah. Carl Lemley Jr. basically let James Whale do whatever he wanted with the film, since Whale wouldn't get to direct the movie he wanted, which was a sequel to All Quiet on the Western Front. Whale also assured Lemley that he wasn't filming The Invisible Man just to get out of a Frankenstein sequel, which was clearly a lie. <laughs> he <laughs> specifically said, hey, I am not filming The Invisible Man just to get out of doing that god-awful Frankenstein sequel. <laughs> like, basically, yeah. that is what he said. Yeah. Which is hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Because it was clearly a lie. Yeah. It was, yeah. That's exactly was what absolute, he was doing. Absolutely yeah. trying to get out. <laughs> it's like, there's just lots of other great stuff yeah. to, to make. Why are we... <laughs> When The Invisible Man was in early development, Universal was just happy to have the rights to the book name and the author for publicity. They were not really planning on using the original story. They basically offered every writer at Universal a chance to write the script. Oh my god. That's that is too much. <laughs> yeah. Aww. It's too much. What? That's, wow. <laughs> why? I see why H.G. Wells was concerned. Oh, um, yeah. Geez. Yes. It took a while for Whale to convince R.C. Sheriff to do a screenplay. Sheriff had to find a copy of the original book in a Los Angeles bookstore because the studio didn't even own a copy. Wow. Nice. Wow. Nice. They really did buy it just for the name. Yep. Exa I was just going to say, they liked the idea of an invisible man, and that's it. Preston Sturges also contributed to the script as well, but was uncredited. Universal also bought the rights to The Murderer Invisible by Philip Wiley. This book told of a man that used invisibility to gain power. This version may have had some of its themes and elements leaked into The Invisible Man, and so online, Philip Wiley is also credited for the script. Possibly the most challenging part of The Invisible Man, besides writing the script, apparently, <laughs> was figuring out the complex special effects. John P. Fulton, Nicknamed the Doctor, <laughs> dressed the lead actor Claude Rains in black velvet and shot him against a black backdrop. They then combined this with separate shots of the set. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty good. It yeah. holds up really well. Like yeah. when he starts pulling the bandage off, mm -hmm. it's like, yeah, okay, right. like damn. This is kind of the thing. This is this is something that people would use in film for a long time. Mm-hmm. The most difficult shot was when he was in front of a mirror, which was four pieces of film composited together. The back of the invisible man, the room that he is seated in, the wall that is in the reflection, and the front of the invisible man as he unwraps. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's just like a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, how do you even time all that to be done? Like the same, you know, the front of him yeah. as well as the back of him, the same... I just what what this movie <laughs> sound like it was really fun to make <laughs> not frustrating at all <laughs> well I think yeah <laughs> I think the whole time they were probably just like "Ooh, what can we do next it's yeah. like you know that'll trick That's people true in order to create a mask special effects artist covered Reigns's head in plaster only allowing him to breathe through straws this was incredibly difficult for him because Reigns had been gassed during world war one 
and had lost 90% of his vision in one eye. He was also very claustrophobic. But the special effects were the biggest draw for audiences, making the film a hit. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Man, (laughs) oh, man. I've seen... They still do similar things to that now. Yeah. They do those special prosthetics and stuff. Yeah. You know, like exact fitting masks and things like that. That doesn't look fun. But he, he actually took his daughter to go see the film when it was finished. And he, the entire time, just was talking about all the special effects that were nice. done. Aww. So she got to hear all about it. Again, <laughs> stop. I'm trying to watch. <laughs> when it came time to choose a leading man for the film, James Whale insisted on Claude Rains, an actor from the London theater that had never been on screen before. Lemley reluctantly agreed, and another actor quit because he refused to be billed with an unknown. Wow. Yikes. That's awful. Harsh. I remember hearing a lot about like, old movies. People would get mad about who they got billed with, who got the oh. biggest name on the poster. That was always a huge thing. Yeah. Wow. It's like chill, dude. Yeah. <laughs> the studio's first choice was Boris Karloff, but there was a disagreement, so he walked off. I think that's really interesting because yeah. I read that he just wasn't available, uh, but I guess there was like some sort of disagreement. Yes. So he, Boris Karl, walked off. Yeah. <laughs> Claude Rains had a very heavy Cockney accent that he had overcome to be a stage actor. Whale found his voice to be mesmerizing, which was the most important aspect of the part, considering the audience would never see his face. It doesn't really matter what he looks like. He's the invisible man. (laughs) The story is that Whale was in a screening room, and they were watching screen tests. A voice came on with a terrible performance, and he said, That's it. That's the man I have to have. Everyone thought he was crazy because of Rains' failed screen tests. Yeah, he had done screen tests before, but they were disastrous. Like, they were really bad. (laughs) Reigns went on to become a beloved character actor. Reigns acted alongside Gloria Stewart, who played his on-screen fiancé. She said that even though Reigns was invisible, he still managed to upstage her. You may know Gloria Stewart more as the elderly Rose in the movie Titanic. Oh, yeah. She's also one of the founding members of the Screen Actors Guild. Oh, that's amazing. Nice. Yeah. The film was popular enough and called for a continuation of The Invisible Man with a series of movies. The Invisible Man Returns, where Vincent Price played Claude Rains' successor, The Invisible Woman, The Invisible Agent, and The Invisible Man's Revenge. Good grief. Invisible (laughs) Agent Man. (laughs) I mean, mean, there isn't going to be a better one. Even though The Invisible Man made an appearance in Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, he also got his own film where Abbott and Costello meet The Invisible Man. Abbott and Costello were meeting everybody. Yeah, they were. What a strange world. I know. <laughs> the, what timeline is this where these <laughs> movies exist? There was also a Son of the Invisible Man sketch in the 1987 film Amazon Women on the Moon. Yes, and it is hilarious. <laughs> This was a funny spoof of the Invisible Man where his son thinks he has recreated the formula for invisibility. And it's very short, so we'll probably link to it. (laughs) Yeah. It's, yeah. (laughs) More recently, Universal teamed up with horror studio Bloomhouse to remake The Invisible Man. The movie was a box office hit at the beginning of 2020 and revitalized the hope of a more successful remakes of Universal's classic monster movies. The Invisible Man is a great example of how the early talkies really started pushing the technical aspects of film. They began working on special effects that may be taken for granted today. Screenwriter R.C. Sheriff called it the first talkie to let itself go on trick photography. Yeah. Very cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, like you said, it it still holds up. I yes. Mean, you look at that composite of where he's unwrapping in front of the mirror and it's mm-hmm. like, oh It looks really gosh. good. <laughs> it looks really good. Yeah. They did a fantastic job. Yeah. So, all right, that's The Invisible Man. Woo! The Bride of Frankenstein is the next one we're going to talk about. Yes. What? (laughs) (laughs) The studio actually thought that The Bride of Frankenstein was a bad title for the movie, and they didn't want to use it. Oh, really? Yeah, because they were like, Frankenstein is is not the monster. Oh, he's the scientist. So how? Why would Bride of Frankenstein? That wouldn't make any sense. Yeah. After James Whale spent years avoiding the inevitable, Universal insisted on making a sequel to Frankenstein. Guys, (laughs) we have to do it. (laughs) It's calling to us. Yeah, he really didn't want to do it. No. 
Originally called Return of Frankenstein, the film went through many changes until Whale ultimately agreed to direct, after Carl Lemley Sr. refused to fund another one of his films. <laughs> Dude, yeah. It's such a weird, like, what is happening over there? It's like, fine, you can make whatever you want, and then eventually they're just like, look, man, yeah. tired of funding your junk. Yeah. Make this sequel already. You have to make this. That's so yeah. strange. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Whale wanted to be an A-list movie director. He may now be remembered, however, more than any A-list directors of the time. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. James yep. Whale is basically, he's the monster director. He, yep. he did Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, yep. Invisible Man. Yep. His name is known. Mm-hmm. Once he agreed to make the movie, Whale decided that it would be a satire of sex roles and focused on a part of the original novel when Frankenstein failed to create a companion for his monster. Whale turned down several screenplays. He started to give ideas to the writers. He eventually hired John Balderson to pen the script. I don't know how often it happens now. Maybe it still does. But the idea of a bunch of people trying to write the screenplay for this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then the director is just like, nah, not that one, not that one, not that one. <laughs> yeah. Right? It just seems odd because you'd think from the beginning they'd like have a team ready to go and they'd just kind of workshop it. Whereas here they're like just... This yeah. person gave it a shot. This person gave it a shot. Some of Whale's ideas included the tiny people invented by Dr. Pretorius and the opening scene depicting the very night that Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein. James Whale also insisted that the same actress play Mary Shelley and the bride. This was to show that beautiful people like Mary Shelley could have a fiend within. Ooh, yes. a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. Uh -huh. So one thing that I really loved about these movies as we were learning about them, is yes. that as they go on, they become, like, smarter and smarter. Like, the movies mm -hmm. become, you know, more mm -hmm. intricate, and the plot lines are really yep. fascinating. The characters are definitely not one-dimensional. Like, these are pretty deep characters. Yeah. And this is one of the smartest ones of the bunch. Yes. This one is, like, an actual kind of satire. Yeah. Um, it has many layers. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, it has, you know, it has that, oh, the lessons and, oh, the monster. Same lessons of the first movie, but yep. then we have the extra, the whole thing about the bride and... Mm -hmm. You know, that whole concept and being thrown in there is really cool. In some ways, Bride of Frankenstein is superior to its predecessor. It was more visually accomplished thanks to cinematographer John Mescal, who used Rembrandt lighting to make the film appear dramatic. Art director Charles Hall perfected the aesthetic of the film's time and place. Mescal used orthochromatic film and blue gel lights that made the monster's blue-green makeup appear white on film. To distinguish their dead-like appearance from the other characters, red was added to the makeup of the other actors. They were also lit with warmer lights. Yeah. yeah. While the first film had no music, the legendary Franz Waxman delivered an iconic score that would become a landmark of Universal Monster movies. Waxman created motifs for each major character, giving the bride a three-note melody. Yes. Franz Waxman was on, he was one of those big, very influential composers of very, of the yeah. early, you know, the golden era of Hollywood. And so like that, this is, he was one of those big three guys that they used a lot. Right. And like the music that he created for Bride of Frankenstein, you hear it in, anytime you watch <laughs> anything about the monster movies, you hear it. Yeah. This is very iconic music. English actress Elsa Lanchester played the titular bride and Mary Shelley. Her appearance and performance became just as iconic as Boris Karloff's Frankenstein. Lanchester came up with the idea of the bride's hiss because of her experience feeding swans in the park. She noticed that if she got too close to the creatures, they would hiss at her. That's yeah. hilarious. <laughs> you stay. We belong dead. The Bride is the only female Universal monster, and they wanted to make sure that she was still somewhat attractive. Yeah, she couldn't be mm. ugly. Nope. Ugh, Can't have well. an ugly bride. Yeah, everyone else could be scary and ugly, but not, not, not the lady. Not the one no. lady, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they used a wire cage 
on top of her head and wove her hair in with some extra hair and the iconic white lightning streak. Oh my God. Yeah. Every This is so iconic. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> the one white streak of hair. Yeah. <laughs> Makeup legend Jack Pierce spent hours perfecting the scar on her neck. Lanchester later said that she thought it could have been bought for 10 cents at a joke shop. Yeah. That's <laughs> rough. <laughs> Poor Jack Pierce. Yeah. He just, he worked, Aww. he worked so hard and yep. they would always say things like this about him. It's, you know, at the end of the day, <laughs> you look at it and of course it was probably much better than a 10 cent yeah. prop yeah. from a store. Yeah. But I can understand sitting in a chair, just having him do stuff to you for hours. You're just mm -hmm. like, dude, just stop. Just go get it from the store. Yeah. <laughs> I just don't want to sit here anymore. I don't want to do this. We yeah. have to do this every day we shoot. Yeah. yeah. Boris Karloff made a much-anticipated return as Frankenstein's monster. His character was given actual lines in the film, which Karloff didn't think worked with his character. He felt the monster was far more interesting as a silent creature. After this film, he would only play the character one more time. Karloff injured his back while filming the first Frankenstein. Now that he was a star, extra precautions were taken to ensure that it didn't happen again. Jack Pierce reimagined Karloff's original makeup with some updates. Karloff had gained a bit of weight, so he was not as gaunt as in the first film. Yeah, he didn't have the sunken in cheeks and yeah. stuff. I see. He's a little thicker. Yep. Pierce added a rubber forehead to lengthen his face. He also added burns and singed his hair. Yep. I can kind of agree, though, that him talking seems out of, out of character. Yeah. But, mm -hmm. I mean... I agree with it, too. I actually think he was right. Hey, the movie still kind of works. No, the movie's yeah, great. Yeah. yeah. Colin Clive reprised his role as Henry Frankenstein. Ernest Thessinger plays Dr. Pretorius, the scientist that has created small people in jars. Thessinger was a well-known British stage actor before his career in films. Even though Dwight Fry's character dies in the first movie, the actor returns as another character in Bride of Frankenstein. The Bride of Frankenstein surpassed the original in some ways, making it one of the most iconic films in Universal's collection. It's the most beloved of all the monster sequels and is synonymous with the first film. People do not replicate or spoof mm -hmm. or anything Frankenstein yeah. without using elements from Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And they're just basically the same movie at this yep. point. Yeah. Just it's like, like one it's long just a movie. continuation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I always think of Scooby-Doo. Yeah. Where they had monsters that were very reminiscent of mm. these universal monsters. Yeah. Including the Creeper, which was very <laughs> Frankenstein-ish. Yes. Right? Yeah. But when it came to actually having the Frankenstein in Scooby-Doo, Bride of Frankenstein was right there. Yeah. They didn't yep. ever do them separate. Yeah. No. So. Yeah, no, she's always there, always yep. around the corner. It has influenced other films, such as How It Appears in The Bride of Chucky and Tim Burton's Frankenweenie. And I feel like it really paved the way for young Frankenstein, too. Yeah, yeah. that's because true. Because there is the dark humor and, yeah. you know, the, just the, the funniness <laughs> of this movie. And, you know, they were able to just twist it just a little more a little further, for yep. young Frankenstein. <laughs> they don't twist it as much as you would think. No. Because but... it's already pretty funny. Yeah. Right. James Whale was able to get some overt Christian imagery and sacrilegious material past the censors, though about 15 minutes of the film was still cut. One scene was cut because it showed a low-cut women's bodice. Oh, no. Oh, no, that decolletage. That, my, my delicate eyes. <laughs> we can't uh, see Mary Shelley's boobies. Yes, I know. Well, we can't even know she has them. Yeah. That's yes. that's what it yes. is, you know. Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh! And yeah, the overt Christian themes and and kind of mocking it a little bit. Yeah. You know the line about Bible stories, the absolute yes. disdain in his voice. <laughs> if you believe in that, yeah. If you believe in your Bible stories, he says. The film is both a compelling look at the horrors of mob mentality and a biting satire on sex roles in relationships. Yeah. One hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Even though it's one of the like later ones, mm -hmm. it's a sequel to an existing one, 
it surpassed yeah a lot of the ones before it mm-hmm. to, to yeah. rise to the top so yep. james whale was like if you're gonna make me do a freaking sequel yeah i'm gonna make it yeah. a- i'm gonna do it the way i yeah. want to do it i'll give you a damn sequel. <laughs> yeah i'll give yeah. you a damn it was sequel. really good <laughs> mm-hmm. they couldn't argue with that kind of success <laughs> nope. for sure yeah <laughs> Oh, I think we only have one movie left, my we friends. We do. Oh my, oh my god, that flew by. It did. The Wolfman. Woo. Wolfman. Oh. Yeah, that was good. I like how it just cut off. The other films we discussed were based on novels and current events, but the last movie that we will cover this week had more personal inspiration. The Wolfman is considered by some to be Universal's final monster. It was made after the studio's original founding family. The Lemleys were no longer at the helm. The story focused on Larry Talbot, a man that unknowingly encountered a werewolf while visiting his father in Wales. He soon learns that he cannot escape the fate of becoming a wolf himself. Man, this movie. Oh, boy. Yeah, yeah. Werewolves are pretty freaky. Yeah, they are. (laughs) But somehow they get all the movies that are silly made about them. Yes. Like Teen Wolf. So, yes. yes. The concept of werewolves was not new. There are stories of humans crossing into the animal world from Greek mythology, Norse and German myths, and fairy tales. Yeah. People born with conditions that caused excess body hair were often the subject of spectacle and rumors, even as late as the early 20th century. In European folklore, the wolfman was linked with the vampire. Bram Stoker's original Dracula mixed the two mythical beings. Yeah, and if you've ever read Dracula, I don't know if you guys read the book, but Dracula is not handsome in the book. That no. was like a Hollywood thing. <laughs> yeah, right. Mm-hmm. He's he's not good looking, but he he is very hairy like a werewolf. Yeah. Like he's ah. yeah. The Wolfman began as another possible Boris Karloff film. While that never came to be, Universal did release Werewolf of London in 1935. The screenplay for The Wolfman followed a young boy named Kristoff. It was set in the Bavarian Alps where Kristoff was kidnapped by the wolves that killed his family. He becomes a werewolf when he is rescued. He changes within the confessional. Universal ultimately feared what the Catholic Church might think, and the project was abandoned. Just because there's a confessional in the movie? Yeah, Yeah. basically. What? I mean... Maybe the werewolf was too demonic Oh, maybe. For them. Maybe. Yeah. When the New Blood at Universal wanted its own original monster movies, they called on Kurt Siodmak to pick up the project. He was told that the film already had a cast and a budget and was only given 10 weeks to write a screenplay. Siodmak was Jewish and had escaped Germany as Hitler rose to power. His inspiration for the tragic storyline came from this experience. Wow. Yeah. yeah, this is like the most personal out of yeah. all of them. Yeah, but uh, y- yikes about that 10 weeks. Yeah, I know. They were like, hey, you yeah. have 10 weeks, dude. Uh, well, well, okay. Uh. Uh, they're like, and then we'll shoot it in three. Yes. Okay. Oh, good grief. <laughs> the Wolfman illustrated how the world can suddenly turn into utter chaos and how seemingly likable people can become monsters, just like the Wolfman. Right. Siodmak spent a lot of time researching the folklore surrounding lycanthropy. He was ultimately proud that he brought the legends of the werewolf out of obscurity and into mainstream American culture. Yeah. And boy, did it stick. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, yep. it's still here. Yep. Werewolves have grown beyond themselves. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. they're, they're as, as much as vampires have, you know, beyond mm-hmm. the universal movie. Yep. Werewolves yep. are just a thing mm-hmm. that people know about. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. definitely. Yep. Definitely. And, you know, I read this. He had a quote that was kind of heartbreaking, talking about just like being Jewish, escaping Germany. Mm-hmm. And he was like, I, too, had a fate that I did not choose that yeah. was thrust upon me. Oh, and, yeah. You know, and mm-hmm. so that, you know, that kind of idea, like, that's why the Wolfman character, he he can't escape fate. He has to die. Yeah. The film took only three weeks to shoot. Director George Wagner and cinematographer Joseph Valentine used ambiguous imagery so that the audience got to decide. Was Talbot actually becoming a wolf, or was it all in his head? Set designer Jack Otterson crafted an interior forest set 
obscured by fog. Iconic. Yeah. This is an yeah, iconic set. And, you know, we talked about, we mentioned that the the transition isn't on screen, so it's like, ooh, ooh, oh, is it real? Is right. But also, did they have the special effects budget to have him transform on screen? Absolutely not. Yeah. In 40 years, they would do an American Werewolf in London, and, like, in that movie, the on-screen transformation was, like, a groundbreaking oh, thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, my yeah. Like, that's how hard it would have been yeah. <laughs> to do that. Yeah. And they, you know, they... Some people have talked about how Bella Lugosi's character, who mm-hmm. is the one that bites him, yeah, uh, his character actually turns into like an actual wolf, like a four-legged wolf, yeah. versus mm. yes, yeah, Talbot, who does not actually turn full wolf. Yeah, he's he just kind of is a man. Two legs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he's that a wolf man. Yeah, that kind of feeds into oh. the whole like. <laughs> Is he actually turning into this, or is it yeah. in his mind? Kind That's of. a good question. Universal pulled out all the stops with an all-star cast. Claude Rains appears as Larry Talbot's father. Bela Lugosi makes an appearance as the wolf that bites Talbot in the beginning of the film. Since Universal was so proud of their cast for this movie, they did a gimmick of showing the actors in a clip from the movie in the beginning credits. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I don't know. Oh. They had only ever done this with the film The Black Cat. Yeah. Do you imagine if they like picked this a uh, pivotal scene? <laughs> Super to spoilers. Show, yeah. yeah to show oh the no. Oh yeah. <laughs> Whoops. Like, Oops. Like oh okay so I guess he dies. <laughs> oh well. Uh, well that's all the right. End of the movie, all right. So. Okay. Lon Chaney Jr., son of the famed horror actor. You guys remember Lon Chaney, right? Yeah. <laughs> got his first role as the ghost of Frankenstein. He finally got his own role when he became Larry Talbot, a.k.a. the Wolfman. This came about after his father passed away because Lon Chaney was adamant that his son not be in the world of acting. Yeah. Oh, Yep. I see. He wanted him to be in, like, business or something yeah. different, uh, you know, like, like not. He's like, dude, no, I can't. Like- <laughs> I'm literally, I have the stat, yeah, I have the same name as the most famous actor of your time. <laughs> I mean, think about that. Like, right. I mean, people, yeah, people came to see his movies just for that. Yeah. Honestly. Oh my gosh, Absolutely. yeah. I remember seeing, I think it was A Star is Born, when we watched that a while ago. Yeah. You kind of see that idea of the name mm-hmm. is Rings. all that matters yeah. Yeah. in some cases. Mm-hmm. You know, that's yeah. what gets people in yep. seats. Yes. Yep. That's what's important on the poster. What is the the person it, it it's the cares name. about the rest of it yeah, yeah. it oh, was really weird. like that in the golden age yeah a lot it's still kind of like that now yeah it definitely um, has an influence yeah yeah people see things if they if they recognize the actors yeah they yeah. kind of like see them as like friends at this point right it's it's unusual to have something with all newbies yes yeah. that is pretty unusual Jack Pierce spent four hours gluing yak hair onto Cheney after his wolf transformation. What was worse was how much it hurt to remove the hair at the end of the day. No. (laughs) Lon Chaney Jr. played the part in all five films. He was especially proud of the Wolfman and received more fan mail than any actor at Universal at the time. Oh, that's nice. Oh, yeah. I think he was also the only actor that played the Wolfman, the Invisible Man, Frankenstein. Mm. He played like all of the major monsters, even Uh, though he hated playing the other ones. Yeah. He loved playing the Wolfman. Nice. Evelyn Ankers plays Gwen. Though Evelyn worked with Lon Chaney Jr. on several films, they were not known to like each other. Chaney would often scare her purposely while in makeup. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) Evelyn had worked in films where she had to hide her British accent and take on an American one. In this film, she had to reverse that process and go back to her British accent. (laughs) The Wolfman premiered just before the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Many assumed the event would keep audiences from the movies, but the opposite happened. The Wolfman was a hit, not necessarily for its escapism, but because it depicted a man-beast during a time when mankind seemed to be at its most monstrous. Wow. Yeah. So this is one of those things where it kind of, because it imitated what was going on, it kind of helped people process what was happening Uh versus it being complete escapism. And, yeah. you know, like we've talked about timeline of horror movies and how what was popular based on what was going yeah, on was in, going in on. the world. Yeah. Siodmak's yeah. script introduced the idea that a werewolf could only be killed by a silver bullet or 
by another silver object. This has become the accepted lore for werewolves. Yeah. So you can thank him for that. Oh, I yeah. didn't know that this yeah. was. Yeah, isn't that cool? I thought that was existing lore. That's yeah. cool. A werewolf can be killed only with a silver bullet or a silver knife or a stick with a silver handle. You're insane. I tell you, I killed a wolf, a plain, ordinary wolf. Take this charm. When Universal realized that the ending of Wolfman had Larry Talbot dead, they asked Siedmak to bring their blockbuster monster back to life. Luckily, with monster movies, death is not always the end. <laughs> In the next film, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, gravediggers inadvertently bring Larry Talbot back to life. <laughs> Horrified, he spends the rest of the movie trying to die. Both he and Frankenstein's monster are returned to full capacity, and they fight. So we've got like a Kong yeah, Godzilla situation. Yeah. Really. Okay, I'm back fight. in. Fight, fight. <laughs> <laughs> In House of Frankenstein, the Wolfman and Frankenstein are thawed out from ice. Scientists say that they can cure the Wolfman with a brain transplant. Larry Talbot falls for a young woman before the surgery, and she decides to kill him instead. She shoots him, and he appears dead. But is he? But is he? <laughs> the end? Question mark. Question mark. <laughs> House of Dracula, the next Wolfman movie, gives no explanation of how Talbot is alive. Yeah. <laughs> He just uh, reappears. <laughs> just there. Oh, no. It's just like, oh, he's still alive. <laughs> How? He was resurrected by the power of yeah. money. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Dracula, however, is explained to have a rare blood disease. They discover that Talbot's illness is due to pressure on the brain, and a much less invasive surgery is done. So he is finally cured. Yay, he's finally cured of being a wolfman. Finally wow. cured. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. That's, Amazing. That's wild. Yeah. That's, wow. That's so different than that. the other, other movies. Yeah. Also, it's, <laughs> also, it's very funny that uh, Dracula has a blood disease. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Larry Talbot slash the Wolfman's last film was Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. His cure from the previous film was not addressed in this film. However, he is kind of a good guy in this one. Stop it. <laughs> You're kidding me with this. Brought him back again. Stop with no explanations. Dude, he's dead. He's alive. I mean, he's cured. He's not. Think know, about this. Yeah. Think about this for a second. You know, it's okay for me to spoil Endgame now, right? Yeah, I think it's fine. Everyone knows that. Spoilers for Endgame. Yeah, spoilers, spoilers for Endgame. Skip ahead. Everyone knows that Iron Man dies in Endgame, right? Yeah. Imagine. The next Marvel movie. <laughs> oh my he's gosh. Just he's back just back. He's just without alive. Without a, a single explanation. No one even asks. Yeah. No one even bats <laughs> yeah. an eye. That's what that is, man. Yep. Oh. Madness. God. <laughs> the Wolfman undoubtedly made a lasting impact on horror cinema. Not only did it bring the concept of werewolves to the mainstream, it inspired many incarnations of the monster, like an American werewolf in London. Although he went on to write other screenplays, Siodmak considered The Wolfman his greatest personal achievement. I mean, it's pretty great. I mean, how could you argue with that? As far yeah. as impact goes, yeah. Yeah, he, it made an impact and it, and it told his story in a very fantastical, beautiful way. I mean, yeah. you know, he was mm-hmm. able to kind of like work out some of his feelings. and Yeah, and like you said, yeah. it kind of helped others do the same yeah kind of help yeah. people kind of process what was going on in the world at the time mm-hmm. you know and people really thought that a movie like this where a man is ripping people apart would not be popular yeah. <laughs> when you've got a war going on but mm-hmm. that is not the case people were like actually i really want to yeah like, i want to watch that <laughs> <laughs> we relate to that <laughs> yeah they they really paid attention to the themes and like what the movie was actually about right these are like we said at the very beginning. There are still more universal monsters. Yeah, beyond mm-hmm. what we talked about. Yes, but I think we've hit the big ones. Yes, yeah, and and they're all such classics, and yeah. they all have such staying power now. Like I mentioned in in part one, how at at every Halloween you'll see Frankenstein's and Dracula. Yes, yeah, yeah, everywhere. Still, you're gonna see. I mean it. Maybe the Invisible Man could be the exception to this because it's tough to do an Invisible Man costume. Yeah, but it, but I have seen it done, and it's always really cool. Yeah, but then you know, Werewolves and Bride of Frankenstein—they're they're classics as yes. well. So yeah, it's so fun to see them 
embraced by everyone, mm-hmm. even as like, you know, oh, it's a kid's costume or, you know, their horror roots. So it's it's awesome, despite not being a huge horror fan. <laughs> it's still really cool to see how that all has such an impact on all of movies. Yeah. It's amazing because yeah. at this point, this stuff's reached. It's far past the. It, it's, it's scary yeah. stuff. Right. You know, yeah. it's not For scary sure. anymore. Yeah. You know, this is yeah. these are these are so familiar to us. Exactly. But this is not something that would scare us. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and some of them literally created, like the, yeah. the wolf man created what we now know as <laughs> like werewolves. Yeah, what werewolves? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, that blows me away <laughs> that the silver thing did not already exist. That, yeah, that's yeah. crazy. Yeah, yep. it's pretty cool. Yeah. Insane. Change in the world. Yeah. 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 One, One monster movie at a time. Same brain. <laughs> hopefully, yeah, hopefully we didn't uh bombard anybody or overwhelm them with all of this information with <laughs> all of these different movies, but you know. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, it's cool stuff though, man. It is, mm-hmm. yeah. If you if you felt overwhelmed, just listen again. Yes. Yeah. And watch the movies. It might yeah, help. watch the movies. They're really interesting yeah. for sure, at least. All right. As we said in our previous episode, the Universal Monster films of the 1930s and 40s are incredibly influential for not just horror, but cinema in general. Although we didn't get to talk about every one of the films in the collection, we did our best to cover the highlights. Although we lovingly refer to these classics as monster movies, they have become much more than that. These films have complex undertones, dark humor, and characters that show us a wide range of mankind. So we had a blast learning all about these so-called monsters. In fact, you could say it was a scream. Oh, ah! <laughs> <laughs> oh indeed. Yeah. Indubitably. Indubitably. <laughs> yes, quite. <laughs> all right. With that, I think that's another case closed. Woo. Oh. That was pretty yeah, good. Yeah, too bad. It. That was pretty yeah, good. You know, yeah. We got Even it. Even though we, we haven't uh, we done that, in we a haven't while. clapped in a long time. Yeah. All right. Mm, right. Oh, well, boy. thank you all for listening. We really appreciate you. We want to thank our patrons: John, JD, Anthony, Shelley, Bob, Jaron, and Jacob. Thank you, guys. Yeah, you are amazing, and we love that you stick with us, and we really appreciate you. Yeah. Really if you want to join our Patreon, you can just visit BlackCaseDiaries.com. There's a link there, or you can go straight to the source, straight to Patreon. Just just <laughs> <laughs> Patreon.com/slash/BlackCaseDiaries. That's the one. Yeah, and uh, yeah, just we want to thank anybody that supports us, whether it be through listening, telling a friend, or just you know donating, donating, whatever yeah. you want to do. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much, guys. Leave us a review if you want. Yeah, yeah. a good yeah. one, please. <laughs> That's Only true. Good if we're making requests, we, yeah, we haven't had one on iTunes for a little while. I think yeah. we finally had made it to fifty. 50. So, do you want to just? Tip that over to 51 so we sure start working to... Oh, Tip it okay. over to 52. Yeah, there you go. Whatever just, it is that you'll you know, be Get us closer to 100, you yeah. know? <laughs> That's our next goal, you know? So, uh, but right. yeah, so good night. Don't let the monsters get you. Oh. Don't and, let uh, the monsters bite. <laughs> yeah. aye, 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 aye. The covers uh, will protect you. Everybody yes. knows it. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Bye. 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 Go now, and heaven help you.